Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. This week, my guest is Will Angelero. He's a producer, engineer, mixer, musician, sound man. He's everything. He's from New York. He's one of the biggest influences for me growing up on my music taste. And we get to talk about synths. We get to talk about New York, CBGBs. We talk about his stage at Glastonbury that he runs. We talk about synths again. We talk about Tony Hawk. Dave Davies from the Kinks. We talk about all kinds of things. It's a real rambling chat. It's two good friends just having a conversation. So check this one out. Here it is. Price. I mean, probably the best value Mike you can ever get. What the hell are we talking about? Right, I mean, yeah. So this is. Do I need cans? Only if you want. I mean, you, you know Mike, so I you can probably to... hear you better with the cans. Though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because this. Uh... So this is called the Giant Pod, basically. <laughs> and I, I only talk to giants. <laughs> That's <No>. great. <laughs> um, it's basically about life stories and things like that, and and uh, and interesting people who've done interesting things. And why do you have me here? Well. Because I want to know how a, a, a big giant New Yorker uh, audio engineer producer ends up in a small English town <laughs> twenty years ago. For it was cool, basically. Yeah. But I just, I just sort of generally want to hang out and talk because we always have such interesting conversations. Like the other night when we were talking about Pee Wee um, Ellis and the fact that I'd love. I to I was get more him interested on. in the uh, that weird organ guy you showed me, which I watched <laughs> a million videos of. Which, by the way. Tell him about that. Have you seen Barry Morgan's World of Organs? Oh, he's a podcast guest. Like he's on the wish list for the yeah. guests. Oh basically. my god, this guy is a genius. <laughs> oh, I've been obsessed with his videos. Have you? <laughs> Have you seen the girl from Ipanema? Girl from Ipanema. Ipanema. I uh, know. I haven't seen that one. Uh, That's one of my favorite songs. Dun, dun, I can't dun, wait to hear. And he's like, "Let's have a little trumpet on this now." <laughs> It's great. It's amazing. I don't know what that... What's that little animal he's got with him? <laughs> I don't even really know. Just, You're supposed to get the uh, yeah. the hand gel on your hands, not... Well, no one says it's just for hands. <laughs> Are we recording right now? Yeah, yeah. This is the fucking preamble, mate. <laughs> the preamble. Uh, well, yes. Angelero. Andy Rintmore. A native of... Is it Long Island? No, Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yes. Why? Why was I thinking? Because I, I did move to Long Island. Well, I did. My parents. Your did parents live yeah. there, right? So I spent more, probably more time there. But I was. I'm born in Brooklyn and was back every weekend to see all the Italian family that we had there. Lots yes. of them. Because Angelero is is Italian. A little obviously. bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> what is the what's the history of that? Of which part? The name with, or with the um, obviously you've got some Italian immigrants in your well I've got all Italian immigrants all my grandparents um, either came over when they were young or or were, were, were born immediately after from random parts of, of Italy and from Sicily as well so yeah it's uh, interesting and they all ended up like so many of them did in Brooklyn right you know, that's once the Lower East Side of Manhattan was full they all sort of spreading out of it what was the what was the why Brooklyn well <sighs> If you know anything about sort of that, that early immigration into America, um, especially in the early 20th century, 20th century, the port of entry, the main port of entry was New York. You'd come in past the Statue of Liberty, you'd park yourself at, a, at Ellis Island, and that's where they were processed. And if you were allowed into the country, they just sort of gave you a tag and said, okay, go. <laughs> Here's the ferry over to Manhattan, and you're on your own. Right. So a lot of them just stayed. Uh, that's why you have so many immigrant parts of manhattan like you've heard of chinatown you've heard yeah. of little italy and you know, that's that's why they sort of stopped and the initial wave stayed in manhattan and then eventually spread out into the city and then rest of the country really which is interesting because a lot of the germans didn't stay they sort of went out west so you see some much bigger german populations in wisconsin and ohio and all this so i have no idea why no idea why. the italians were like Ugh. I just did 4,000 miles on a ship for three months. I'm going to stay right here. Thank you very much. 
That yeah. is it. That is actually quite fascinating. Yeah. Why that? Why they stayed and why the Germans went? Is it? I did, no idea. No idea. It would. Do you think it would have been because the Germans didn't want to be? They wanted their own space. They didn't Perhaps. subscribe to the multicultural. Everyone else wanted their own space too, but right. if they didn't leave, they just sat around and fought with each other. I mean, the right. Irish and, and the original Dutch settlers and, of course, all the African-Americans coming up are freed slaves. Everyone just was at each other's throats. That's sort of the tension that, that built New York. And that's what makes New York so culturally significant, isn't mm. it? That's why everything worthy well there's everything there is every nationality is, is is represented at one point or another and you can you can probably get food from almost every nation somewhere in new, in new york city which i do miss here in Froome. yeah <laughs> well that's what i want to get want to get into is like you have a history obviously of um being on the music scene in new york i know you've you've hung out with some heavy hitters and grew, grown up with with people that have gone on to have in, incredible careers yeah all my old friends got famous except me I remember you telling me that once. Well, no, well, I spent a brief period of time playing in some really heavy bands, which you would have loved. And um, quite a few of the people that were on the scene with us did really, really well, and we didn't. But that's fine. So why do you think you didn't and they went on to... The band I was in were far more motorhead than actual hardcore. We were right. just sort of up in that scene. I don't know why. Why does anything happen in the music industry? It's impossible to tell. Maybe we just weren't very good. But we had a lot of people that come to see us play, so who knows? Okay. You never can tell. You can I hear can any tell. of this? Where can I get this? Oh, God. I'd have to find you some. I have some CDs buried somewhere, yeah. You'd be absolutely shocked to hear me playing. What were you playing guitar? I was playing guitar, yeah. yeah. Lead? <laughs> uh, yeah, mostly. Mostly. But it's not very much of a solo kind of genre. It's a riff, <laughs> riff genre. Really. How, how did you approach a, a, a solo? Yeah, usually just uh, opening up <laughs> the overdrive <laughs> and letting it feedback. Um, we did a cover of uh, The Blue Mask by Lou Reed. That's right. the kind of thing we're talking about. If you've never heard The, the Blue Mask, it's one of the most offensive of his solo stuff is so loud it's a wall of noise layers and layers of guitar it's incredible but uh yeah a lot of the stuff sounded like that so i know that you're into a lot of electrical uh electrical electro it's not even electro is well, electronic it? music of all sorts yes that's probably what i listen to mostly and probably even at my biggest rockest years in my life i've always listen to electronic music some of the some of the first music i ever heard after the initial listening to the beatles and the jefferson airplane and the grateful dead that my, my dad and my uncle introduced me to in the blues stuff but probably you know seven eight years old i was obsessed with with things like donna summer and m and you know pop music and some of the weirder things i had Studio heard 54 type well no no not at all none of the commercial disco donna right. summer does she did a few records with uh giorgio Moroder, which uh are really really weird and pioneering um giorgio Moroder, whose last aside from his solo stuff had a, a feature on the last daft punk album just sort of telling his history and going through going through the kind of approach he did to his for him, his late phase when he discovered the Moog synthesizer, um, and those weird those records like um, "I Feel Love," uh, you listen to them now without without hearing it when it came out. You don't get the impact. It's like that early Beatles stuff. I want to hold your hand. Yeah, it sounds so twee compared to some of the other Beatles stuff. But at the time, yeah, those chord changes just weren't. They weren't done. Nothing, nothing had ever sounded like that before, and that's why they were so revolutionary. And I'm not comparing Donna Summer to the Beatles, but I am comparing the impact that Giorgio Moroder had on electronic music, taking a very European, craftworky feel and slapping it on American soul music, and that—that that was the, you know, the birthplace of house, lots of stuff. And why do you think you gravitated towards? Because I feel like we're maybe we're. Although we have an awful lot of middle ground, mm -hmm. we're opposite ends of the spectrum there because my passion is all, I'm all about rock and roll, basically. Mm. I love lots of other things, lots of other genres, but electronic, pure electronic music like house or drum and bass or gabba. Well, that's electronic dance music. Yeah. Electronic music, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to say 
Kraftwerk, for example, were while there's some of their stuff you could dance to, you could dance to anything if you're creative enough. I would say that that was pioneering electronic music. Um, but, but even they weren't the first. I mean, you could you could look at, at artists like Stockhausen before that, which are definitely not going to throw on at a party, or at least least not a good party you would <laughs> yeah, I might I might if I wanted everybody out but I mean the first the first time I think uh, aside from a, a handful of artists uh, Kraftwerk were pr probably the first group to to sort of synthesize arrangements and classical influences and modern pop music specifically the Beach Boys which is all over the Autobahn record you can hear it I, I found it as a kid fascinating and I, i'm trying to think of what i was thinking when i was you know eight nine years old and i think i go back to to what is that sound you know what is making that sound i get the guitar the bass the drums even the organ what is making those sounds and I, i've been obsessed ever since you know trying to make something that doesn't sound like anything else in, right. yeah, in necessarily in nature so what what is there a moment you can think of where you were like you had that epiphany for electronic music? Was there something that really just sort of captured your mind in sort of an, a developmental stage? Yeah, um, I would say aside from all those those the hipster bands like I mentioned in Kraftwerk, but I can't say aside from a few songs I was aware of them at age nine. I wasn't going around. Hey, I'm listening to some German music, you know. <laughs> it, it wasn't like that. What I heard was the very rare breakthroughs into pop, into pop music. And incidentally, the song is called Pop Music by a strange group called M, just the letter M. Is that the one that's like, mm, pop music? Yeah, that's it. What okay. is going on? And the, I went and bought the single, the 12-inch single, which I still own, and then I bought the the full LP, and it's it's weird. It's really weird. On the flip side of that, and I was very happy to, to listen to an interview with Trent Reznor, who, who basically articulated what I've what I've thought for years, uh, Pink Floyd, specifically the Wall album, which came out the same year, is strange. There's weird stuff going on on that record. I mean, we, again, we're so used to it now, and it's so part of the conversation. But when it came out, and you listen to that with no idea of what a synthesizer is, or even what guitar effects pedals are to that point, the album was was is dark. Right. And strange and sonically, the palette was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Even earlier Pink Floyd, which I was vaguely aware of, Dark Side of the Moon at that age. But um, it just made me want to make different sounds. Right. You know what I mean? To, to, to explore. The, something. Is there a limitlessness to it? Well, have you ever listened to All of the War by Pink Floyd? I've got to tell you, I haven't. Yeah. I almost bought it actually on eBay <laughs> the other night. It's it's a really bizarre record. I've seen the film, take, take so away. I guess I have heard it all. No, but it's a different experience, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, take away the, the the lyrics, the songs, the, the the concept, which is bonkers to begin with, and just look at the sonic palette. You know what does it sound like? And again, it's a masterpiece, and it's of experimentation and arrangement. And, and again, was, I, I wasn't aware of that at age right. nine. I was just like, what is this? You know. And who was the uh, who's the orchestrator of that? Is that Roger Waters? Or was that another member of the band uh, that got really into the synth side? Pink of Floyd, the Wall. Well, Richard Wright was the keyboard player, and right. I'm not even just talking about synthesizer stuff. I'm talking about music concrete. You know, the 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 idea of avant garde music and tape loops and all these things, and even reverse message, you know, reverse sounds. All these things were packed into that one record. Found sounds, you know. Um, cars driving by and, and strange eerie creaky things it could be a synth it could be like foley type sounds you can't tell i mean now i know now i can tell you exactly how it was made but at the time it was it was just floored me who was responsible would be the god oversight of it would have been roger waters but the producer on that album was a guy named bob ezrin who is known for they call him the kitchen sink because he just throws everything in he actually had worked <laughs> on a few Kiss records. <laughs> That's where I know the name yeah, from mostly, yeah. yeah. Did he do the early Kiss records? No, he did like... Um, Dynasty, probably. Uh, yeah, some of the the, the the later 70s, far more large sounding ones. The early oh. rock Kiss records, which I love, and they're probably the ones I go back to. Yeah. Just good they rock They don't and roll sound records. that great. Hmm? No. They sound pretty crap. No, they sound, they sound like raw... Rock and demos, roll. yeah. But it was uh, specifically the first album is my favorite Kiss album. Our mutual friend John, mm. uh, when I was getting into Kiss, I, I I usually pass a lot of things that I'm really getting into mm. through you and John. 
And he said that the the problem with the the early Kiss records is that two tin cans and a piece of string, right? And the rest of the budget went up their nose. Yep, jo John's been using and, and and he's been using that term for, since I've known him, <laughs> almost forty, <laughs> and he's completely right. And the first time I heard him say an album sounded like it was recorded with two tin cans and a piece of string was talking about the technical ecstasy album by black sabbath <laughs> no not even not even that one um, never say die which is oh, right the, the last aussie records and they are just they they sound like everyone was asleep at the wheel <laughs> i remember asking you once because just just for a bit of history you uh you work at uh the college that i yeah. went to in my, in my big school i guess you'd call it <laughs> and in my earliest most impressionable musically impressionable years you were my guru and you still pretty much are to a big extent but i remember one day saying oh black sabbath i used to push everything past you yeah. what do you think black sabbath and he said the first six albums yeah and then leave it alone well see if you speak to john he'll have a different opinion right. he'll, he'll definitely say the first six albums but he and he's not convinced me since 1986 that the two Dio albums are absolutely brilliant they are incredible yeah well sure. I know I had I know, them on earlier I know, I know. just Sign of the Southern Cross is Satan if Satan was a <laughs> WWE wrestler Sign of the Southern Cross yeah. that riff would be his entrance music man I wish I was an artist to draw that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Satan with Sabbath but no uh, so yeah And We've later, been, I got a T-shirt which reminded me of that thing you'd said to me at that age, which said, "You can only trust yourself and the first six Black Sabbath <laughs> albums." <laughs> they are good records. Doesn't fit they me are good anymore. Records, yeah, yeah. The only tattoo I have is the the Black Sabbath bat. <laughs> That's the only thing I've committed to my body forever. But um, yeah. <sighs> but even even if you start talking about weird sounds, and it's a, a bit of a little bit less. A little less subtle than than Pink Floyd was, but um, something like um, the Rit or Who Are You, you know, with Bob Daisley on synthesizers, right. brought a really odd sound to to that. And I used to love that. I used to love, where is you know what kind of keyboard is that? My, well, the first bands I was ever in when I was a teenager, we had a keyboard player, and he had this uh, crappy little Korg Poly 800, which I tell you what, I'd kill to have one right now. Um, we. We didn't know what we had. Then he went on to have a, a DW8000, which was a lovely um, a polyphonic Korg, early Korg synth, early MIDI Korg synth. Um, and we always tried playing with these buzzy and these sweeping sounds, and he just couldn't do what you could do with them from since five years earlier that right. would triple the price and 50 times bigger. But uh, I, we always loved it. We were a rock band. We were doing you know covers, and we did Led Zeppelin and you know, with... Um, what was it from the last album? All My Love with the big, you know, glorious synth parts. We could never quite get it right, but I loved it. We loved Zero and In trying to get that sound. I remember seeing a, a video of Pete Townsend mm. um, using a synth for Barbara uh, O'Reilly. A, a, a VC, a, um, a synthy uh, VC, you'll know this. Uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking at our uh, esteemed <laughs> synth. And, uh, synth uh, uh, V Synthy VC, so the, it was a, the one that Eno used in um, Roxy Music. It had it's instead of a patch bay, it had these little these little things you put in. But that's what that's what he was using in uh, Bob O'Reilly. Yeah, with and, a with a primitive sequencer. And they put in there. They they all had. This was at the time when they had spiritual guides. I There's, think they uh, had literally had gurus. Yeah, and his name was um, Ma, uh, Maya Baba. Right, which is where the oh, Baba O'Reilly. And they put his birth date yeah. into the, that was the, the, the <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you'd sequence the synth in those days, uh, but they somehow they managed to translate his birth date into the thing and into the synth. And that yeah. is the pattern that they got. Synthy VCS, that's what it's called. Is it saying here that it was a, a Maori organ? Not on Bob O'Reilly. Oh, no, um, or was it? I thought it was a, a synthy. Oh, look at me! It's I remember seeing a big building full of uh, things with like yeah, a patch I thought bait. he, I thought he had a, a, a modular, and that. he was explaining. Oh, if I take this out here and I stick this one in here, <laughs> then I get it was a bit of Spinal Tap, and I yeah. get a uh, right. different thing here. Perhaps that's all coming back now. Right. Um, it's always been a sort of fringe element of musicians. The 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 modular synth these guys that build their own modules or they trade modules there's whole conventions in germany it's crazy and a lot of times i listen to these these massive wall size 
synths, and it's just bleeps and bops and interesting noises, but there's no music. Right. Anyway, what, what what's happening now is they, they've gotten really cheap, and Behringer is putting out um, actual um, modular synths, and people are starting to use them that they could never afford them now. And I'm starting to hear some really interesting sounds coming out. I listen to Six Music all the time, and there's some bands that are, that are coming out, I'm like, what? That sounds great, and then it's actually a really good song. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to think of, of of stuff that I listen to that has a synth in it um, that I really really like. I like a lot of uh, um, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, um, I like some of that early, like we were talking about the Who and and some of the sort of uh, element. I think there's a is there a synth in uh, some Black Sabbath? Doesn't Rick Wakeman oh, so play some synth? Well, no, it's uh, Bob. Da Rick Wakeman might have, but Bob Daisley. I was thinking on the song "Who Are You," which right. is a really eerie track. Have you heard of a band called The Midnight? No, it's uh, it's like an eighties mm -hmm. synth thing, and it's basically the neon and the the Miami Beach thing. Are they a modern band or were they from? No, no, it's a modern thing, right. and he just recreates this eighties yeah. uh, sound. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if they call it retro wave or something. I don't like know. That. I think the masters in the last, and they're not even new anymore. They're they're old, but the masters of retro who have updated it properly were Hot Chip. I think they uh, they took the sound of of as a group like like the Cars in the eighties, which was just a sort of a standard rock band out of Boston, but they had a very interesting synth aspect yeah. to it, the same as the, the Talking Heads at times. Um, and that was, you know, bands using a synth. I, I think in the '90s, a great, a great retro band was the Rentals as well, who were offshoot of Weezer, who I'm sure you've heard of. Heard of Weezer? Yeah, yeah, and they they had three synths, a violin player, and just the bass through so much distortion. It was so much fun. And I think Hot Chip has taken that has taken the more Depeche Mode approach to it. Right. So there's always people pushing the boundaries, but maintaining something interesting. And this is all apart from electronic dance music, which is a whole different thing altogether. A whole different world. Yeah, which I could speak about for hours and I won't bore you. <laughs> <laughs> so you've grown up in Brooklyn. You found mm -hmm. your affinity with dance music, electronic music, mm -hmm. simps. You find yourself, though, in a, in a heavy band, a rock band. Mm. Do you play CBGBs? Do you play Max's Kansas? Max's was gone by the time right. we were playing, but CBs I played a few times in a few different acts. In fact, if you want to talk about since the first time, the first few times I played there was with um, that heavy band I told you about. Uh, went back there years ago with um, a group I was in called Flexido Junction, which still exists in weird conceptual form to this day with my uh, my great friend Scott Kukla, who is uh, one of I John's. Know Scott, yeah, a little bit. One of, one of, John Scott and I are still very close. Um, we were doing, we were pushing the opposite end. We were doing completely conceptual. We, were, we like to think of ourselves as Fluxus artists, which is why we were called Fluxedo Junction. So we would go out with, um, for example, two turntables, going through effects pedals, a synthesizer, uh, an, an organ, more sample pads, and random various percussion all into microphones with tape loops. I mean, it was complete art. It wasn't... It wasn't, again, not something you throw on at a party. Um, and we managed to hook up with um, a poet named John Sinclair, who was uh, once upon a time the the manager of the MC5. So this is this ancient I was going to say, why do guy. I know that name? Yeah. Yeah. Well, John Lennon wrote a song about him called John Sinclair. So, <laughs> so we did a song together in the studio. We just right. managed to get him out to the island, and we did this track, and it, it, it was great. And he, he lived in New Orleans, and he... Um, he would tour around occasionally with the, uh, they were called, I think they were called the Jazz Pass, not the Jazz Passengers or whatever. I can't remember what they were called, but Wayne Kramer from the MC5 was in it, but he wasn't in the version that came to New York when he asked us to play with him at CB's again. So there's this drummer, bass, a double bass player, a guitarist, him out there reading poetry. And, what kind of poetry is it? Oh, it's really anarchist, um, sort of ultra leftist is it got like a beat vibe to it very much so right. that's where it comes from yeah um that i have I can, I can find you that track quickly and then and then in me scratching records through effects pedals and whacking on uh sample pads it was really bizarre really hard to listen to but so much fun and the people that were there were just old bikers and old anarchists from the 60s so right. they were like far out man you know all the, all the cliches you can think of <laughs> way out of our elements scott and i but it was it was great, great but that's fun. where you've got to go yeah. isn't it? you've got to go out your comfort zone yeah 
to make interesting things happen. Yeah, yeah. And it almost wing it. Man, the MC5, I had the, um, I bought the live album actually much later on in my... What, the first album? Yeah. That's that's their first album was a live album. Yeah, much. Which is strange because usually you, you do a few albums yeah. and you put out a live album. They're like, uh -huh. yeah, forget it. First album they ever put out. Live. I Jane's think, Addiction did that. Partially. That was yeah. the EP they did. Yeah. That was the one with uh, the Velvet Underground cover, Rock and Roll. Ah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I got given a Velvet Underground LP today. Which one? Um, it's the one. It's not got. Uh, it's got. A, it's black and white on the front, and it's without um, one of the key. John Cale. It's without John Cale. So, I'm not massive on the Velvet Underground. This is going to be a that's, educational. That's, that's all right. There's clinics you can go to to have that fixed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was going to say. So yeah, I got the MC5 album way later in my yeah. rock and roll. Um, education let's say than i should have mm -hmm. obviously i knew kick out the jams yeah um but wayne kramer is he's like some sort of evangelist preacher yeah. on that album yeah brothers and sisters let's come together let's do this are you ready to and i was just to this thing thinking this is just amazing yeah well, it's 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 them and their sister group was uh, the Stooges yeah. are definitely the foundation DNA for for punk really yeah if, uh, what yeah. the musos like to call proto punk yeah well that's part of it but then you get all those sixties garage bands you know the like Sonics. the Count Five or the Sonics you know it's also part of it. it's question mark and the Mysterians. How's this for hipster, right? And Kurt Kamein once said that his favorite ever snare sound was the snare sound from the Sonics. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Which Probably recorded with two mics on the kit in someone's you know, garage in yeah. Minnesota somewhere. They didn't, I think they were Seattle-based. The Seattle. Um, they didn't know how famous they were <laughs> until the, alterna the alternative rock thing mm. blew up in the 90s because they, they left it alone in the... Yeah. 60s, late 60s, maybe. Sort of packed up and got regular yeah, jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like families, whatever. Yeah. They didn't realize that there was this whole generation of superstars yeah. coming up who were all beginning to cite them yeah. as influences. And then they come and they realize that, oh my God, we're, we're this massive band and we didn't even know it. Have you heard of the band? They were called Death. Um, is this the punk band or is this the uh, the death metal band? Not the death metal band. The African, all African American yeah, mid seventies punk band. I interviewed Tony Hawk once, yeah. and we got talking about a documentary about death, and and I still haven't watched uh, yeah. it. But he was they banging on fantastic. about fantastic. There was them, and there was another band out of Australia called the Saints, who mm -hmm. all sort of arrived at the same sound outside of America, which is really so, bizarre. Yeah. strange, isn't it? It it must it must be the influence of something much larger and international. Who which knows? Isn't necessarily did applicable. I, did I ever tell you my Tony Hawk story? No. Okay, so I met Tony Hawk as well. Yeah. So this is probably late late nineties. Uh, I had a small PA system, and it was Scott working for uh, working for a record label, right. Scott Cuckoo, and he had Dave Davies from the Kinks yeah. coming to play a solo show. I'll tell you my Dave Davies yeah. story in a minute. <laughs> So he was coming to play a solo show. I was going to go to Midtown Manhattan to the giant monstrous Tower Records and the big court in the middle. And they had a little stage. And I set the. I was setting the PA up and we were getting Dave plugged in to do his show. And there's there's a bunch of old hippies standing around, probably about 25, 30 guys standing there, and probably 400 kids, just complete silence, all standing there watching us with the skateboards in there. <laughs> so I was like, this is really weird. What the hell is going on here? And I was, was Scott and I were talking to um, the, the manager, the liaison, whatever. Some other guy was over there. We're like, who are all these kids here to see? They're not here to see Dave Davies. And the guy I was talking to was like, I think they're here to see me. I'm like, who the hell are you? <laughs> so he puts his ear, I'm Tony Hawk. I'm a, I'm a professional skateboarder. I'm like, you can make money doing that? <laughs> yeah, I I never heard of him. I had no idea who he was. He's much taller than I thought he would be. <laughs> well, it wasn't to me. No, not to you because you're a gigantic man. I, mean, as I, well. I, I have since learned quite a, a bit about him, but that was it. I had no idea who he was. Yeah, yeah. He's um, from the small amount of time I spent with him. Very, very nice guy. <laughs> he was one of many famous people I met who I didn't have a clue who they were. Right. Yeah, when I first moved here, I had a, a 
it's probably the first year I was here, I was asked to DJ at uh, Babington House. Right. And I went about a week before to look at the place to see what the room looked like. And a person who I was doing the party for was talking to the Babington people, I guess. And have you ever been there? I haven't. I've okay, had this invites. Is, this is, this I've never gone. Beautiful little um, chapel sort of right in front of the main house. Right. And um, I was sitting there you know, looking at it and looking around the building and um, – this woman was waiting there, and uh, we got to talking. And I, and I said, that's beautiful. She's like, oh, yeah, I got married here. I'm like, oh, did you get married in there? And she's like, no, nah, I didn't. You know, we got married down in Brighton, and we came up here for our big party. So I told her what I was doing, and um, I said, well, have a good night. My husband's coming. We're going to go. And I didn't even saw the husband walk by in the corner of my eye. And uh, she said, you know, great time. See you later. Nice to meet you. She walks out, and the person whose party it was goes, do you know who that was? I said, no, I have no idea. Yeah. She goes, that was Zoe Ball. I said, I don't know who Zoe Ball is. She, she's a famous DJ here. And I'm like, oh, God, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah, she's married to Fat Boy Slim, <laughs> who literally walked in my peripheral vision a foot and a half to the left of me. No idea. I was huge Fat Boy. I still am. Huge fat, at the time, I was way into his stuff. Right. Walked right past me, didn't even notice him. Did you go in on, has he got a lot of deep cuts, Fat Boy Slim? Is he? Because I know he's got monster big iconic hits, but has wow. he got super deep what, cuts? Well, he, he, he's like Apex Twin releases under a lot of different names. But if you want something fun, dig up the uh, the uh, Brighton Port Authority, right? B, the BPA. I've heard of this. Yeah, it was a uh, is great it's collaborations with Iggy Pop and and uh, Talking Heads. It's 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 really good. I think Charlotte Gainsbourg is on that one as well. Yeah, very fun album to listen to. It's as soon as you know who it is, you go, oh God, of course it is, because it's just so norman cook you know yeah i've seen him uh where have i seen him seen him a couple times at glastonbury yeah he always He's does there every week dj set at the uh the whatever that is the, the one that looks like a giant city bark yeah oh god what is that called um down near the dance field yeah that's in the dance village as they yeah, call it yeah, now yeah. near sonic i can't remember what it's called now i know what you mean though it yeah. looks like a favela yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. yeah yeah it's great it's fucking loud that yeah, system yeah. is so loud and he only ever does dj sets this is which i really enjoy but i would love to have seen him i don't think he ever has gone out and done, done a, a full set thing. yeah yeah it's always djing whereas you go so i'm really into um orbital and groups like that and, and the chemical brothers who bring out everything they own yeah uh, stacks of synths and they're all on and they're all feeding through a mixer and they all have you know small remote sequences so they're improvising they're bringing tracks in and out it's it's a hell of an undertaking but i would love to seen him do, do that but didn't you have. choose to see the chemical no you went to see public enemy over rolling stones at glastonbury no i've seen public enemy at glastonbury but the, i saw the chemical brothers over the who yeah ah uh, yeah was that see that's where we differ <laughs> where i i respect the chemical brothers Mind you, that but particular show to. is considered one of the greatest shows ever. And I was there, man. I was there, baby. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, my Dave Davies story, let's get this out of the way because I realized I <laughs> teased it and I never went there. But I'd like to come back to Glastonbury in a oh, minute yeah, okay. and talk about your stage there. But um, where do you think I met Dave Davies? Oh, God. Of the Kinks fame. Please don't tell me the cheese and grain. No, I have no idea. I met him at work. Well, over here. Yeah, oh, down there. All right. Yeah. And I said, uh, and it was him. It was him. And I, I've told this story recently. I think I told you, Harry. So I said, ah, oh, are you Dave Davies? <laughs> and he went, no, nah, I'm not. But I get that a lot. And I knew, I, but I knew it because I, he's got a very distinct voice. Right. And I've seen documentaries about him. But why would he say he's he not? Wasn't. It's not like he's, he's, you know. Right. It's like Ozzy walking and going, no, no, it's not me. You know? Right. And I said, oh, okay. But then I don't know what I was... I didn't know how to react because I'm not going to stand there and go, bullshit, you're Dave, uh, you're Dave Davies. If it ever happens again, I can tell you exactly how to get a reaction out of Dave Davies. Or what, did you, what did you do? Done it. I've, I've met him twice now. <sighs> right? So then he goes, oh, what's a, a, a falafel thing, right? He's buying a wrap, a vegan wrap yeah. thing. And we so we're talking about this wrap and I'm thinking, here's the guy that's written all these riffs, right? And I have to, and I'm meeting him. He's denying it's him. And he wants to talk about a bloody vegan rap. Okay, so I did that, right? And we did the whole, I did the niceties <laughs> thing. I knew it was him, right? I knew it was fucking him. And I said to him, when I gave him his change, I said, don't worry, mate, if you were, I wouldn't have made a big deal about it. I gave him a little wink. Yeah. 
you know, just trying to play it cool, you know, like I know you, you know I know who you are, but I'll play your game. It's fine. And then he came in the next week. Yeah. Came to the till again and he sort of waited for me till I was free. And he came right. to my till and he kind of gave me that look. I gave him a look like, all right, mate. <laughs> and then we you know, we had a bit of a chat and I was chatting to, do you know Andy Morton? <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Yeah, he he runs a <laughs> magazine called Shindig for the yes. listeners, a very 60-centric magazine. I, I, I've, I've seen it. Yeah. And I said, hey, you never guess who I just met. I met Dave Davies with the Kinks. Think he'd be super jealous. And he was like, yeah, we were hanging out with Ray the other day. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that Dave's down here looking at, down in the area looking at houses. Uh, so, so, that, so And I went and I Googled him on my lunch break. Yeah. And he had the same ring and the same bloody jacket on. Then, so next time he comes in, if he doesn't, if he, if he denies being Dave Davies, just say, "Is it true, Jamie Page played the lead the lead guitar on You Really Got Me?" Just, just ask him <laughs> that. Watch him go through the roof. Do you think he'll get uh, defensive? Uh, he might start smashing stuff up at the counter. It was me. I've been fifty years. I've been... <laughs> but he knows I know who he yeah. is, and I know he knows, and it's cool. We're all we're groovy. I doubt I'll ever see him again, but. Um, it, that was just an interesting when someone says they're yeah. not that person you know they are it's so weird so after he did the the um, thing at Tower the next day he, I, I think it was the next day maybe it was even the same evening he had an industry showcase at some club downtown in Manhattan so Scott and I went and it was a great show it was good fun um, get on the train head back to Long Island I'm on the Long Island Railroad and the late train back to Long Island is notorious it's it's just the most awful thing because it's all the really drunk Long Islanders heading back to suburbs thinking, you know, they've been in the city and they can do whatever the hell they want and trash the place. And uh, it was just horrible. I walked into this car and it was like walking into 1983. It was just metalheads everywhere. I mean, cut off denim. Battle jackets. Everywhere. (laughs) Patches. And this guy got right in my face threw actually threw the devil horns in my head and screamed priest were you there <laughs> i didn't know judas priest had played madison square garden that night the same night i was down there seeing dave davies down downtown so i was like no 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 i didn't go to see priest and he the look of disappointment on this guy he's like oh it was like a deflated he went back sat with his friends and i had a 45 minute train ride of Listening to all the greatest shows they had been through from like 1980 to 1992, I can tell you every every great Iron Maiden show at Madison Square Garden. These guys talked about nonstop. I was going to throw myself off the train. (laughs) Are you into (laughs) Iron Maiden and Judas Priest? I I was just talking about this the other day. I liked them at the time. Again, nothing sounded like it ever, and I can still go back and listen to the first couple Iron Maiden records, and especially Judas Priest. For a short period. Right. If you listen to it and appreciate it and really like it, you know. Yeah. But I can't whack a whole record on and listen to it top to bottom anymore. I'll start I'll start losing my mind. Yeah, I'm a bit like that. I like there's an awful, awful <coughs> lot of Iron Maiden that I really like. You should hear the um the, the two thousand and fifteen remasters they did for vinyl. They just put them out digitally. I'm sure they're great. Oh my god. It's yeah. like a whole new band. Mm. I can't think of really another project of restoring old recordings other than the Beatles stuff, which is a whole, totally different process. Uh, where I was like, it's like made the band brand new again. The, the tone in the drums, the everything, the bass, they they went from like a pretty good band who who's done very well off of a, a formula and a stage show <coughs> to when you hear these remasters on Spotify, oh my mm. God, these guys were actually fucking incredible. And they Especially were incredible. the drums. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Nico McBrain was the drummer's name. So good. At least the second drummer, I think. I can't remember. I used to know all this stuff. So, yeah. But no, I I don't, it's not something I'll go to first. So I'll put it on occasionally. If I like, I don't really like heavy, heavy music much anymore. And if I do, I tend to go with industrial. I listen to a lot of ministry and some of the weird German bands. But I don't, I find it, I find it very, very flat, very one one sided, you know. Right. It's quite. I mean, there are nuances, of course, in any genre of music, and people who listen to really heavy metal stuff will will go on and on about the differences, and they're right. I just yeah. I I find you it a bit dull. It. Yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, I listen. I can listen to to you know, Belgian trance 
for six hours straight and tell you all about all the subtle differences. And all you're going to hear is, you know what I mean? So right. it's it's just taste, really. I just was never that angry. Even even we've had the discussion, and I'm not going to get into it now with you, about what the definition of punk is. So even <laughs> proper punk music, you know, when it became punk rock, I, f I find it gets very boring with four chords guitar right. and there's some guy shouting into the mic. I'm like, well, you know. Yeah. You could step off the distortion pedal and go into a three-four thing. You know, the slits were a perfect example of being able to go from completely raucous to reggae. You know, yeah. so I, I find anything that gets that that gets repetitive, I get bored of it really quick. Yeah, yeah. I always remember when I would ask you about things back when I was like, however old I was, fifteen, maybe even younger than that, and you'd say, "No, nah, I'm not into that." doesn't mean it's they're not good yeah. i just and i remembered that because you can because there's a, at that time you're surrounded by so many mates that go oh no don't listen to that yeah. that's crap uh, and actually i try not to i try not to say that about any music because the, I, it just means that I don't get it. Yeah. Or well, there's something in it that I'm not. Well, I'm you not might seeing. you might even get it completely and just say it's, it's not, not like for me. Yeah. yeah. And I and I liked that approach, which was like it wasn't that's hot. That's a crappy band. Mm. It's like I'm not into them, but it doesn't that doesn't mean you should think they're crap. Yeah. It's just that I'm not really into them. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It, it means something to someone. Yeah. If it's out there, someone's going to, they're going to, every band's going to find their audience to think they're the greatest thing ever. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Just don't make me have to listen to it. <laughs> so you've gone, so you've gone from your um, live music days, mm -hmm. uh, playing CBGBs uh, a handful of times and the other, probably some other legendary places in New York. Continental was a big one I played a lot. What's the history of Continental? <sighs> Just a scum hole in the Lower East Side that's been <laughs> right. there forever. They've actually only, I, th I think they're closed now, but they they managed to hold off a lot longer. It was it was just up the road from, right. from CB's, a little, little further up near St. Uh, Mark's Place. And so how do you then get into, because you find yourself working in recording studios as a mm -hmm. producer, don't you, or a mixed, uh, an engineer. Mm -hmm. How how did that, how did you get that leap? I was, I was the guy early on that liked the stuff. I, I'm the one who tried to figure out how the PA worked when I was singing about one, you know, trying to get it not to feed back. Then another guy in a different band bought a cassette four track and it ended up at my house for you know, eight months at the time. I had the first drum machine. When I say drum machine, I mean really primitive stuff. Is an 808? Oh, God, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. You wish no, you had an 808. Um, at the time, I did, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't want to be step sequencing now. It would drive me absolutely batty. Yeah, but um, I would. I so I was the first person to do that. I was the first person recording vocals into a four track and going, "That sounds awful. Why? Right? Probably because oh, whenever it's all in the reds, it's terrible. And then I, I recorded it really here. It's all hissy, you know. I started to figure out, you know, there's a magic spot, you know." different mics, different, you know, it, it was very, very gradual. I didn't jump into it right away. So you self-taught? Or did you have any um, sort of mentors? Probably about 1990, I finally decided to to get the education and I went to a technical school, an audio school for a while and got my little certificate there. And that was uh, that was all learning. Um, it was reel-to-reel. -reel. It, was, it was outboard effects, patch bays. And then there was a whole module on early MIDI as well. So I learned how to use, um, uh, you know, how MIDI works, which I'm not going to get into because it'll bore everyone listening. <laughs> but that's what that's where I learned, you know, and I sort of had a little sampler and some keyboards and I learned how to plug them into, like, a, I think my first computer was an IBM XT 1984. It struggled with more than 64 tracks of MIDI. Right. No audio. It's just MIDI, right? With the little card sticking at the back with the middle. Sixty-four sounds quite advanced. No, sixty-four MIDI channels. There's no audio in MIDI. It's it's nothing. This computer oh. was ancient. It was meant to do spreadsheets back, you know. <laughs> um, so and and I started up from there, and then and it just just picked up. By the time I started working in other studios, I had a slight. I went in sort of knowing how a compressor works. So. so did you get like a lucky break? Did you have to like make the teas and I stuff? I still haven't had a lucky break, so. <laughs> but like, I guess in New York City. 
Um, There's a hell of a lot of competition, isn't there? There is, and by this time I was I was working in studios out in the island, so it was um, while still a pain in the neck, uh, nowhere near cutthroat. Right. It, well, I, I never would have been able to hack it that early on in New York City. I mean, the big places like the record plant or, you know, yeah, it, there's no way, no way. Electric Lady Land. I'm not going to be walking in age 19 to Electric Lady Land knowing, having done a few demo sessions for my friend's band on a cassette four track, <laughs> you know. But I could have gone in as a T-boy, but I didn't. I stayed out where I was and I worked and I was still playing in bands and I wasn't going to make, it was always something else I did on top of playing music. Right. It, the, the switch, the, the emphasis didn't really turn until the mid 90s when I said, well, I want to do this a bit more. And now playing music is sort of another thing I do. Right. Yeah. And so what sort of things did you find yourself recording and engineering in your early years? Is it mainly sort of rock and roll and yeah. scratchy punk? Oh, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was all sorts. It was, it was husband and wife with acoustic guitar who wanted a demo for cruise ships. It was, oh, wow. so it it was, was really local like bands who, who played Tom Petty covers. It was you know, some metalheads, some real death metalheads and, and all sorts of stuff. And that's doing session after session and week after week after week for years. I started, I started thinking, well, maybe you should drop the bass out at that part, maybe, you know, kind of bring this part out a bit more. And that was the sort of early seeds of um, production. Right. Really getting into it. I mean, this is producing not in the way we kind of think of it now, um, a lot of people will say, you know, this this guy's a producer because he makes tracks, he makes beats, and puts and then records a vocal on. He's a famous producer. A producer back then is the engineer who got all the mics and all the stuff sounding good, who then was getting involved with, to some degree or another, the creative arrangement and the creative creative process. Do you get so, hands on with that? Depends on the artist. Right. Um, I'm about to. I've got a project coming up where I'm going to be you know, right in there with the songwriting and I've got stuff that I throw the mics up and go, you know, so it's, it's different for every artist. It also depends how much money they have because I, I don't do it for free. Right. Yeah. What's your, what's your strength? What's, what's the strongest thing? I think I work absolutely best with an artist who has great songs and trusts me to bring out, to make right. them better. So they're open and they're willing to. Yeah, to yeah. Um, if there's if there's a trust, and a lot of times if, if they don't know me, I have to sort of go back and explain my process. Other people come to me and say, "I want to do a demo, or I want to do an EP." And I'm like, I'm, "I'm in this band," and I'm like, "Okay, well, let's, let's do it. We'll choose a studio we go to. I've got several places I work out of um, that have different sounds for drums, um, some big ambient rooms, some really small tight rooms." Uh, We'll just we'll pick it based on what they want to do and just go from there. We always end up back here in Froome to overdub and mix. And uh, so, how do you end up in Froome? So, when when do you start? What what's the what? How do you get here? Well, after so, after the decision was made to move here, we decided to move here from from New York. Um, I had the option of going anywhere anywhere we wanted. Right. So I kind of liked the Southwest as a yeah. As a tourist, coming over here to visit, you know. I said, and that was it. It was just we found it by accident. Someone said... Because your wife is... is she, she's British. Yeah, right? she's British. And, and But she works for the NHS, so I was able to work anywhere I wanted. Right. Because um, she could work anywhere. So how wanted. do you meet? Do you, uh, you come here... We met in New York. A... No, we met in New York. She was living in New York working. Oh. Yeah. What that's, was she doing in New York? Uh, occupational therapy. That's what she does. Oh. Yeah. So we... Um, came over here and I said, well, let's try for a mountain. So I lived here six months before I bought a house. And that was it. I probably met you about a year later. Maybe really? Two, yeah, two years later. I see. I had a, I thought that you, you had been here for much longer than... 2002. I moved here. 2002. Wow. And here's a little, here's a little aside for you. Yeah. So I lived on the other side of town from where we are now. Yeah. And I was here for a day. And I had no job, I had nothing to do. I was yeah. going to walk around the neighborhood and see what it was, what it was like. And there was this little punk kid with, I, th I think, a Clash or a Ramon t-shirt. I can't remember what it was. A young kid. And I just said, it's a cool t-shirt. <laughs> First person I ever met. Yeah. You know who that was? <laughs> I know who that was. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, Amelia Elsa Pereira. Yeah. <laughs> First person I met when I moved here. It's madness. Yeah. And then you had the... Uh... I, I I mean I still feel that the hole left by your old rehearsal studio, Hanson Lama, mm. 
mm. is still being felt here in the town. Yeah, now I opened that place. I had tried to model it on a place called Dare Studios that I worked at for years in New York. And you know, three, three rehearsal rooms, tiny little recording studio, do some stuff. And that, that's why I opened it. Um, I did some research. There were no, at the time, there were no studios around other than big recording studios. There was no places for young people to go and rehearse where everything would be there. And I completely overestimated the population of the Southwest and how people travel. At least back then I did. So, I mean, because this is the studio in the dead center of Long Island where there's four and a half million people all on top of each other. You always get business. Bands everywhere popping up. And uh, I was really shocked that there was a lot of bands in Froome and a couple of us, but, but it wasn't, it, it, it never quite caught on the way it did in New York. And that's why eventually I shut the doors and, and went to private recording and split the live sound business, which is probably the best decision I made. Though I did love that place. And I do think, I do think there are, like you said, repercussions being felt. There are people still playing music today that yeah. got their start there. But, I, but the fact that it was there mm. and there was a facility for it meant that bands were created, I think. Yeah. I think so. I think it, you're right. And there are, there are, when I closed, a couple of other places opened up that are still going today and they, they probably wouldn't have opened up had they seen it could be done, at least out here. Right. I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, I did. But I do, I do feel that there is, it's no coincidence that there was a very strong music scene here. And then as soon as your place shut, it started to... It started. I don't know. I don't know if that was because the older know. kids were giving up and doing other things. Uh, things or, change. I, I, I am surprised how few bands there are now. There are a few, yeah. but it's it seemed like everybody was in the band then to one yeah. degree or another. And we were getting people over from Warminster and Westbury, and I don't know what it's like over there anymore, Shepton. But it doesn't seem to have. But there's less places to play. Yeah, you know. The well, I, I say that, but I don't even. Well, there are a lot of places to play 15 years ago. I don't know, because I was just a yeah. bloody kid, basically. Yeah. And so my, I don't know, I don't know what the landscape was then. But I tell you what was really important about places like that is you meet, is you meet people in your network. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I met Nick Wilton yeah. from uh, Ghost of the Avalanche first. He was in a band called The Operation. And I was in my the height of my Misfits obsession. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you remember and um well there you go uh, over there i got my misfits jacket all over there <laughs> and he had a horror business yeah. shirt on and that was it That's and we've been takes, we've been yeah. like tight ever since based off of that me having to speak to yeah. him as one of the older heads in the yeah. scene wearing a misfits t-shirt and those kind of interactions yeah. don't really don't happen that I, often. I, I will say um if my studio had anything to do with it um dan began at the, when he was at the Somerset Standard with your time, was equally, if not more important, at pushing local music. If it wasn't for that, that weekly, yeah, weekly um, boost to unsigned and local, and, and basically kids, a lot of them, yeah, um, I don't think the scene would have would have done. It, it's it's more of a coincidence when the paper changed and that, and they shifted focus, and he and he left. That I think that was a major factor as well. It was a huge loss, huge loss to the, to the whole area for, for music. Those, those battle of the bands they did were really important to all the heats. And, they, and because they did them all around as well, you know, they did a Midsummer Norton and um, I, I, it's really sad. It's really yeah. sad that it's gone. He was, he, he should have a statue somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but then things do move on, don't they? As you said, it's different times and things yeah. change and, I think that was a really great period of time. Which it I was, back it was. On. And I, I sort of came in partway through it when I opened the studio. So it was a lot of bands before I got right. here as well. I think it just, it gave, it gave young, younger people a place to play. Yeah. In, even if they never went out and, and did a gig, it was just a place to go and, and yeah. make music. Uh, and that this seems to be gone around here now. Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah. And so how do you end up working at Glastonbury? How do you, how was, what was the in there? I imagine the Glastonbury is a very different place when you got here to, to the place it is now. Um, Probably much harder to penetrate now than it was. Possibly. I mean, I, I, the, 
r- retrospect, I got there two years after the festival went through a major change and the big outside wall went up. I don't know the anything. Mega I had just moved here. Right. Uh, I got in by pure accident, right place at the right time. I had a PA as part of the studio. It was one of the room, the room PAs. Yeah. And I had done some better. I, I was doing a lot of free gigs then, just so people would know who I was. I did a battle of the bands up on ECOS. Um, and someone who worked there, who I got very friendly with, ran the third stage in the Avalon field. Do you even know there used to be a third stage? No. Big, yeah, it was called Little Massive Stage. And uh, they were friends with the cafe people who last minute said, look, we're not taking this guy we had before. Could you come in and do something really small? And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, sounds fun. You know, I thought it was going to be a one thing, one-time thing. I went in, they called me back next year, and then... The rest is history, really. Right. It's just gotten bigger and bigger every year. And I, I kind of make it my uh, Thursday night, or at some point during the festival, I try and make it a pilgrimage to come over and sort of see you guys and drink rum and uh, at least try and spend about, about an hour with you. Yeah, I've um, seen some of the weirdest things I've ever seen live on that stage. <laughs> and it's it's been so much fun. Also, some of the best things I've ever seen. There's artists I never would have heard of. Yeah, And I get to hang out with Lloyd Grossman. Yeah. <laughs> Lloyd Grossman. Yeah. Oh, and he's, he's gold, a punk gold band, top last poll. Yeah, he plays every year. <laughs> he he plays. He headlines Thursday, Thursday night every year at Glastonbury for the last like eight years. So you guys are pretty tight. Well, as, as far as I can high five him every time I see him. Yes. <laughs> That's New, pretty tight. How's New York? <laughs> How's Boston? He's from Boston. So. Is he? Yeah. I thought he was English. Oh God, really? No, yeah, he's American. He had a very strange. No, 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 no. He was, um, he was on. Remember, never mind the Buzzcocks. I do. So he was on Buzzcocks once, and um, they were they were going to try to make fun of him for being in a band. And he goes, and here's you playing Glastonbury Festival, and they put a picture up, and it was from Avalon Cafe. <laughs> and it was just there was the singer Valentine doing the rock pose. Um, Lloyd in the back with his fist up in the air and his gold top Les Paul. And this mic that looked like it was about to fall apart. And I'm like, of all the pictures, that's my mic. (laughs) Terrible. It had been been through the whole festival. It was covered in mud. Yeah. And yeah, it was on Buzzcocks. My microphone was on Never Mind the Buzzcocks. What's the wildest Glastonbury year you've had? What's the one where you were like, oh my God, that year was batshit crazy? I don't know years anymore. I know. um, I'm getting a bit like that. And I've only done about four of them. Yeah, we've. been there since 2003 we've we've had some weird ones um one of the worst ones we had was uh the ska band who shall remain nameless um had this random hype man on the stage and the place was packed and we were already having um we were already having a problem with crowding at the front and people trying to leap over the barrier fence yeah poor luke emery he was on the team that year so it was like him and me and 700 people and uh set went really well they were fantastic big horn sections and then this hype man guy reached over across the divide and pulled this girl up on stage and what followed was a stage invasion and they all started jumping on top of our speakers and everything tom pepler who was up at the front of the house says whacked the sound down shut it off and we were literally throwing people over the fence <laughs> I, you know luke i yeah. think he was i mean i You'd have to ask him, but I would say he was absolutely deer in the headlights. He didn't know what to make of the people leaping at him, bodies flying everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite funny, really. So yeah, we had a, we had a rough one that year because equipment got damaged, and you know. Uh, what happens when equipment gets damaged at Glastonbury? Do you yeah. send somebody a bill, or no, not really. It's part yeah, of the gig. It's part it? of the gig. Yeah. Um. You mentioned the Battle of the Bands a minute ago. Yeah. On uh, Ecos, which is, uh, we're very lucky to have an amphitheater on our college here. Um, I think I was at that show. I, are you sure? We're talking, you would have been really little. I was in, did, you did one I've when done I was few, in Bath, yeah. uh, not Bath, I was in Froome College. Yeah. Brad, you know, remember Bradley? Is it Fusion they were called? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his his bass guitar strap fell off. Oh, God. Anyway, that was that was the, the day I went. I'm let's do a band. Yeah. This, do band. this this actually the one I'm talking about was years before. Oh, that. okay. Um, I think 
in fact, I know uh, Al Kane's band, The Manana Project, played. So we're going with ancient I've, history. Yeah, I know Al, and I have never yeah. heard of that. Oh, so they were, they were great, old. yeah. So we're, we're going way, right. way back, yeah. We're at the one hour. Sorry, we didn't tell you about the one hour. That's the, uh, Harry gives me the, we're at the have one Have we been hour. talking for an hour already? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, that's a problem. We don't so, up, do um, so how are we going to get? Uh, so we we've come to the agreement. If I can get Pee Wee Alice on the podcast, James Brown's legendary saxophonist who lives in the area, and 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 Van Morrison's legendary saxophonist, ah, yeah. yes, that you will come on and um, help me. Help, yes. <laughs> um, because you're a big Pee Wee fan. And I feel I, I, that you I know have, the man. I you have the... decades. Well, yeah, I you played know, with the man I mean, you're, you're friends with him, but you also know his back catalogue like no one I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I told you when we were at the pub um, at that wedding, he was just sort of sitting there eating. And I, was, I said to his wife, I said, let's see if we can get Pee-wee's attention. And I pulled out a song called uh, Moonwalk that he had done. Or was it? No, it, was, it might have been The Chicken. And I played it you know, while everybody was eating. And I watched him. I watched him sit there and he sort of pricks his head up and, Oh, uh, me. And he looked over at me and he smiled, went right back to his food. <laughs> we <were> dying laughing. <laughs> uh, tell, tell me the, uh, what was that thing you were at the cheese and grain? You were eating with him at the cheese and grain. <laughs> it was before the Ginger Baker show. Right. And uh, they just had a bunch of uh, KFC all around the table and I was sitting around eating with them in the band. Not with Ginger Baker, he, but the rest of the band. Yeah. And um, <laughs> this is so stupid. I, I turned to I turned to Pee Wee and and I was because I wanted to pass the big bucket of peas, so I just said, <laughs> "Pass the peas," and he just reached over, passed it over to me. But the joke is, of course, one of his big songs was called "Pass the Peas," and I thought he would laugh, and he didn't. <laughs> either either he's heard that all of his life, or yeah. he just. I'm, or he just couldn't believe how stupid of a joke anyone would say that to him. He just hey, here's the peas and have it with your chicken. Big thank you to this week's guest, Will Angelero. That was The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. Please check out some of Will's music and projects in the show note descriptions. Please send uh, a review, subscribe, like. You can follow my antics on Instagram at Andy underscore S1S. This was produced by the incorrigible Harry Williams. Check us out next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much.